This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Finding Your Bliss with host Judy Liebrach. Heard every Saturday at 1 p.m. on Zoomer Radio. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Finding Your Bliss, the show that helps you find and follow your bliss. I'm Judy Liebrach, and as you all know, we've interviewed a myriad of authors on this program, and as such, a bevy of books comes across my desk every week, piles of them, but every once in a while, there's one that really stands out, I'm looking at it right now, and just makes my heart beat a little faster, and I get excited about it, and in this case, I'm really excited for you and also for me, because I know that you're going to love it. That's how I felt when I saw this colorful book jacket for the book, Writing That Gets Noticed, Find Your Voice, Become a Better Storyteller, Get Published. I was so intrigued for a few reasons. For one, we all want our writing to get noticed and to be appreciated. But as a life coach, I've helped many a writer start and in many cases finish their manuscript, whether it was a novel nonfiction, a play, screenplay, memoir, or book of poetry. And I'm always looking for tips on how to help people achieve that. I also was intrigued because I'm working on my third book and we all need all the help that we can get. So I'm very excited to meet and to have you meet Estelle Erasmus, who is a professor of writing at New York University, NYU. She is the host of the Freelance Writing Direct podcast, and former All About the Pitch columnist for Writer's Digest. She's written about a variety of subjects that all sound great, health, beauty, fitness, publishing, business, travel, for numerous publications. Her articles for the New York Times and Washington Post have gone globally viral, with more than 500 comments on her New York Times piece, How to Bully Proof Your Child. What a great title. She has appeared on Good Morning America, which we just were discussing, and has had her articles discussed on The View. She's also taught, coached, and mentored many writers who've gone on to be widely published. She is an American Society of Journalists and Authors Award winner, and she was a cast member in the inaugural New York City production of the Listen to Your Mother's Storytelling Show. She lives in New Jersey, and she's just acquired two more very exciting accolades. She just won drum roll, the 2023 Zibby Award for the best book for the writer. And earlier this year, back in April, she also won a 2023 Teaching Excellence Award at NYU. You can find her at www.estellserasmus.com. And we'll give that all to you again at the end of the show. And as mentioned, she is the author of this fabulous new book, writing that gets noticed. Estelle Erasmus, welcome to Finding Your Bliss. Delighted to have you here. Judy, it's such a pleasure to be here with you. I'm really excited to talk to you for so many reasons today. Me as well. I have to tell you, the biggest nugget I have to give you after reading your book, which is wonderful, by the way, is that your book just makes me want to write. It's the kind of book that needs to be read and reread. And I want to tell any folks out there, whether you're a professional writer or an aspiring writer, novelist, or even 
a Zoomer who maybe has had another career and has always wanted to write a book, and this is your chance, I'm telling you, all you have to do if you're feeling that you're having some writing woes or you're stuck is I encourage you all to read this book, Writing That Gets Noticed, with a glass of water and two Tylenol and you'll be ready to roll. It's chock full of tools and tips and actionable steps, as Estelle calls them, and they really are, that will help you all. Can you tell us a little bit more about your brainchild, Writing That Gets Noticed, and what made you sit down and write it? Sure. I was a magazine editor-in-chief back in the 90s and the early oats. And so I had the experience of being on both sides of the publishing wall. While I was a magazine editor-in-chief, I did columns and I wrote articles primarily about women's issues and beauty and health. And then later, I was a journalist on the other side, writing for over 150 publications about health, about beauty, about relationships, about dating. I was called the dating diva, and I taught sessions at the Learning Annex and the Seminar Center in New York City about how to give great date, which is really... (laughs) And I was on TV shows for it and At the same time, I was a magazine editor-in-chief. So I had many different aspects of publishing world that I've been in for the past 30 years. And Mm. I wanted to distill that, not only my experience as a magazine editor, my experience as a widely published journalist who's gone viral with several articles in the New York Times, Washington Post, and Yahoo, somebody who's been teaching at NYU and also for Writer's Digest and in one-on-one coaching. And my students have been published everywhere from New York Times, Washington Post, Chicken Soup for the Soul, In Style, Vogue, you name it, LA Times, you name it, they've been published. And so I wanted to distill the knowledge that I had and the lived experience and what Malcolm Gladwell says is the 10,000 hours that I've put in curating content, talking to experts, talking to editors, being an editor into this book. And not only that, but after I did a pivot into medical education, a little bit after 9-11, when things shut down in the publishing world, and I was dealing with infertility and getting married in midlife, I learned everything about how to vet studies, how to vet doctors and physicians and experts and find out how to read research. And that became very useful for me when I was doing health writing and very useful for showing my students. So I share all of that, including places to find experts, where you want to find experts. You don't want to go and be writing something for a publication because you've had a good idea. And then you're online and you see, this is a great website. You do a Google search for some information about some drug. And it just says like happydays.com and you're like, great info. And you're putting it in there. Your editor who will know what to do says, wait, this is a pharma owned company. It's not a journalistic tool you can use because it's proprietary. Yes. So I'm trying to 
the mistakes maybe I've made or my students have made along the game. I wrote this book because I really wanted to bring that knowledge to the forefront in a bigger way than just my courses or when I speak at conferences all over the country. It's actually so, there's just so much. Like I, I want to get to the nuts and bolts a bit of all of this. It all begins with ideas. And you have a fabulous section in the book called 13 Ways to Find Your Best Ideas. What are some of your favorites? I mean, I think that a big thing to me, because I had that background in medical education, was to imbue some of the science into the book because that gives it the credibility. Mm -hmm. And so it was very important when I talked about how to actually come up with the ideas. And a lot of people say to me, and a lot of my students, they say they have writer's block. And I say like some of the things you can do is change the font that you're working with, right? So when I have blocks, I usually I write everything in Times New Roman. (laughs) That's the traditional publishing format. Yes. But I'll move it to Garamond. I was going to say, or Helvetica, (laughs) or Helvetica, or or Comic Sans, or something different, because it wakes the mind up. Mm -hmm. Again, we are bombarded by noise. And so our minds get very used to certain situations. And I think it sparks it. It's the same way as I talk about in the book, look for unusual words, not highfalutin academic words, but instead of saying, happy, use elated. Immediately you get a ping for that. So I do what I say, one of my tips or one of my Estelle's edge, which is my way of get sharing pro tips is I'll say, create a word bank and start if you see an interesting word. That's how I ended up using the word detritus in an article, in an essay. Yeah. And you you did that in Salon Magazine. I I seem to remember you writing that. And I love your idea of creating a word bank and literally creating a document on your computer or just putting it in a little journal if you want that, you know, the sort of physicality of the handwriting. And just every time you hear a fabulous word, it will find a home one day in a piece. So what a great idea. And another tip that I share with my students and I share in the book is to use active verbs because that also elicits the reader's attention and emotion. Like use the word, you know, you're talking about emotions. My emotions churned is much more, churned is a much more exciting active verb than I had emotions or I felt happy, you know, bubbled up. I mean, there are all ways that you can think of to use active verbs. A marriage collapsed, not it was over, it collapsed, (laughs) you see? And these are all words that are used in headlines and titles. And I have a whole section on my book about how to create titles that evoke emotion, that get your first reader's attention, which is the editor, and then the reader's attention. I I consider myself a bit of a title queen because (laughs) when I was a magazine editor, I would choose the cover line. Yes, you could do ad copy. You got so good at the titles and I love your titles. And and I, you know what I also love Estelle is that you 
quote so many of your people that you've coached, your writing students, and you show them in living color in all of these wonderful publications, very erudite publications, magazine and newspaper, both. And you include little snippets from their writing and it just makes the whole thing come alive. And, And I even like the fact that you talk about the longhand versus the computer thing. And there is yes. definitely a belief that the physicality of hand to heart when it comes to writing is so powerful, more so than the computer. Would you agree with that? Or do you think that? Oh, absolutely. I think it's anything that you do that could shake up the routine. See, I know a lot of people advocate write every single day. I can't do that. My lifestyle is so busy that I can't. Mm -hmm. I do believe you can think about it or touch the piece or just look at it. Yes. But the wonderful thing about our brains is that they're always working. And I talk in the section about, you know, losing your creativity or not being able to get your writing, you know, started, that you can literally start thinking of what you want to write and then watch bad reality television (laughs) and with people who have worse problems than your own and your brain is still working. And then you can, so don't feel the pressure. Like one of the things I feel that I'm very inspiring to my students. And I love that you said fairy godmother because they consider me a literary fairy godmother. And I love that in the book, I want to share their voices. You see, it's not my voice. What I always feel the most proud, the pride as a teacher is that they tell me it's my voice on the page, (laughs) but it's your voice in my head. Wow. That's fabulous. That's so (laughs) fabulous. Was it, you know, sometimes I also feel for people, there's too much information. We have so much, like I'm, I'm writing a book about finding your bliss. I know a lot about bliss. I've studied it for years. I have a great interest in the word. I think bliss is different than happiness. I don't want to give it all away, but you know, spoiler alert, there's my whole book. But um, sometimes I almost feel like there's too much. And I feel like, where do I start? There is so much information. And some of it I'm going to take from the myriad of guests that I've had on this program for the last five years and from the great people who've already written about bliss, like Joseph Campbell and others. But there's so much that I've learned and sort of ascertained myself about what it is and how it can benefit you. But where do I, where do I begin to tell right, the story? Right. You know, and is that a common? Start at the very <laughs> beginning. Yes, yes. I don't think Absolutely. that was on tune, but. <laughs> mine, mine was really not. <laughs> but, you just uh, have to really, so, so what I talk about in the book is you can just put in, if you're struggling, like I want to put a scene from my childhood, right? Write a sentence. I was sitting in the backyard playing badminton while my dad grilled hot dogs. Mm -hmm. Okay. You have that one sentence. Now maybe you can think of something he said to you, Estelle, we're going to go to the amusement park today after you clean up your room. There you go. I just put something else. And then look at each sentence you wrote and go, so what? So what? So what? I was in the backyard playing Batman with my mom while my dad grilled. So what? Well, (laughs) that showed how close we were back then. There's the so what. There's my third sentence. It might not be in the right order. I may need to move it around, but now I'm going to put that down and I'm going to look at what my dad said to me and I'm going to go, so what? My dad was a little controlling, but he was also very loving and spent time with us. 
that's my fourth or fifth sentence. <laughs> yes, yes. And now I can start having the little pieces to put it together. That's how you deal with the feeling like I'm overwhelmed that I have to write the great novel today yes, or yes. tomorrow. That's how you start working. That's and that's start. what an editor does. When I'm editing my students' work, I'm saying this goes here better. This goes here better. Yeah. This needs a piece of dialogue. So what for this sentence? And I always say, and that's another reason I did the book, because I always say the old adage, if you give someone a fish, you feed them for the night. If you teach them to yes. fish, they can feed themselves for the rest of their lives. Yes. And it almost makes me teary to say it because, and I'm not that emotional <laughs> person except when I'm writing, but it's like, that is the greatest gift that I can share someone because they now own it. It's theirs. Mm -hmm. They have their own agency. Another great thing that you do is that you say, and I love this because it takes the pressure and the heat off, stop editing yourself, write it, let it all go, let it all out. It might be messy. It might be whatever it is. You can go back to that piece of clay and paint it and bake it and do all the things you need to do to it, but just get it out there. And here's the beautiful thing about that. And I don't think people quite look at it this way. The part when you're doing the first draft of something is really the place you have the most freedom, mm -hmm. the most freedom you will ever have. Yes. You can throw whatever in there, kitchen sink it, yes. get it all out. Because I'll tell you, the editing part of the brain is a different part of the brain. Mm -hmm. And when you get into editing mode, that's a whole different scenario. But you need the material to work with. That's right. And that's what you're doing. So I think it's, again, life is all about perspective. I mean, you're a life coach. You understand. It's yes. all about how you look at something. And so if you put the lens on it in that way, I think it transforms the feeling about it. Yes, absolutely. Oh, there's something in here, guys, that I just, oh, I loved it so much. It's when you write about the six-word memoir, what a fabulous way to get your creative juices flowing. And I adore yours, which was midlife mom, find self, writing, teaching. And then you write about how Ernest Hemingway, who won this bet that he could write a short story in six words, wrote, for sale, baby shoes, comma, never worn. What a tragic narrative. Can you tell us more about the benefits of the six-word memoir? Yeah, I love this technique and I use it a lot in my online NYU classes, especially in the beginning to get people comfortable with words. A lot of people love to read, but they're not comfortable manipulating words. Mm -hmm. And so this is a way to come up with different interesting words to start with and to come up with evocative words, right? Yes. So somebody, you know, some may start Maybe they want to write something about how life changed as a parent. And they'll say, became a new parent. I don't know. I'm not going to say it was hard being, a new, you know, right. but there's a way to then transform that even elevate it. I love the word elevate mm -hmm. and I use it a lot. And so maybe it's something like the transformative 
you know, trans becoming a mom transformed me. Yes. That's a little bit different. First of all, it uses an active verb, right? And so that's one of the things you can do to play around with that. And it brings, it makes people think. I don't think people think deeply enough about who they are and writing and journaling with a purpose, as I talk about in my book, I talk about how to actually journal so that it's going to be useful. Not like my high school journal, (laughs) which was went bowling today. (laughs) I wore a really cute pair of palazzo pants. It was fun. (laughs) (laughs) It was fun. I had ice cream. Yay. I mean, my college journal was more helpful. It's like, he broke my heart. You know, he said, you know, this, that, and the other. So it's a little bit, it's a technique. It's a tool. And I do believe that to build craft, you have to find different tools to put in your tool chest, Mm -hmm. just like with life, when you're working with emotions, you're working with writing. And a lot of writing is getting the reader to feel something. Mm -hmm. And your first reader is the editor that you're going to either pitch an article to or your essay or send a completed essay too. So how do you journal with purpose? And I know everyone, you have to read the book writing that gets noticed to really find out about this, but just a quick nugget tip on writing, journaling, something that we, so that it's not a listicle and it's not whatever, but it's got (laughs) purpose. Before we hear more, we're going to go on a short commercial break. When we come back, we'll find out how to journal with purpose back in a moment. Finding Your Bliss is brought to you by CREATE, Canada's leading fertility centre for over 25 years. CREATE is here for anyone struggling with infertility or in need of assisted reproductive technology to have children. CREATE is about cutting-edge science from highly skilled doctors. In unprecedented times like these, CREATE is about ensuring the safety of all patients and staff. CREATE has made important changes to protect you by ensuring social distancing, wearing masks, as well as screening before entering. So what about the bundle of joy that you've been hoping would come into your family? Create Fertility Center is here for you. Visit createivf.com to keep up with the latest changes and learn about Create Fertility Center's comprehensive care for every fertility journey. Keep safe and healthy during these challenging days, remembering that life is about moments that we create together. We are back, and this is Finding Your Bliss on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. And I was just asking you, Estelle, before the break, how we can journal with more purpose. So I'm going to go back to one of my favorite books, Vivian Gornick, The Situation and the Story. It's a decades-old book, but what it really talks about is in every concept, there is a situation, which is the external, which is my high school journal. I went bowling. I look cute. That, mm-hmm. And then there's the story, which is the emotional underpinning, the yes. emotional implication. Yes. So what was omitted from my high school journal was I felt different than everyone. And so I dressed like them to be accepted mm-hmm. because I always felt like I didn't fit in. Mm-hmm. And I still don't, you know, something like that. Lovely. So when you're journaling, 
You write the situation, that's fine, but then you write the emotional implication. That's what is omitted from high school journaling. Maybe today they don't, but mine definitely omitted that. Mm -hmm. And so there you're starting to have the context and the bones for how to build out a story that you can later use. You're reminding me of this time. I'll never forget this when I was really in my late teens, early twenties. And I remember I broke up with the love of my life. Harry was his name. And, uh, and I remember, uh, literally laying my forehead on the cool tiles of the washroom, bathroom, restroom floor, because I was burning and I wasn't really burning, but I was metaphysically, metaphorically burning and laying them down on the tiles and saying to myself, I never want to go here again. No matter what relationship I'm in, I'm never going to go down on these bathroom, restroom tiles again. That's a scene. And that's that's a a scene. scene. And I just realized that. (laughs) And that's what I'm, that's another part. I'm so glad you brought that up because in your journal, feel free to put in a scene, like as if a movie camera was panning on and showing. So that would be a scene. I lay down, you know, after we broke up, I pressed my face against the cool tiles. It didn't help the heat rushing through my body. And I vowed never again will I do that. Yeah. Judy, I used to do some, (laughs) I love that. I used to do something when I was a young girl and I still kind of to this moment do, there's a song from Yentl. There are moments you'll remember for all of your life. And anytime something important happened, I would think there are moments you remember, you know, and I would Yes. And I would like, yeah. And so it, it embedded it. It wasn't journaling it, but embedded it in my memory. So I have a question for you. You're yes. a mezzo-soprano. Yes. You trained classically. I did. You wrote a beautiful piece about your dad's Alzheimer's and how you yeah. couldn't get through to him at one point. I related to this so much because my dad suffered a similar affliction and mm. passed away. And the only way he could communicate at the end was music. So I know so many people related to this and you sang to him. And I researched what you sang. You sang Summertime from Porgy and Bess. And I just think that's so incredible. And I'm going to ask you something that's going to shock you right now. But do you think at the end of the show, I'm not saying live now, but after the program, we could talk about it. Would you be interested in singing that on the show for us? I would. Because I, would I think it. that'd be really cool. Because that that's yeah. a great. Can you tell us that story about how you got published in the New York yeah. Times, that article how about how you ran out of ways and means and ultimately got through to your dad by singing? So the New York Times, which I had written for a lot, so I had written that viral piece, How to Bullyproof Your Child, and I wrote a lot of parenting pieces at the time. My daughter is now a teenager. She's 14 years old. She has no interest in me writing parenting pieces, although she did give approval for a very important parenting piece (laughs) that will be coming out in 2024 in a publication that I'm very excited about. Wow! So I can't talk about that yet, but that was exciting. So I had written for the New York Times. And so they had a section called the Ties Column, which was all sorts of stories about family and about relationships. And Mm -hmm. so I said, I'd love to write this story of calls, and I gave it the title that they kept, singing my dad back to me. Because I said, my dad has Alzheimer's. He really can't keep the conversation going. 
But when I sing to him, it gets his attention because it's a different level. And I did the research. I said, it's a different level of memory that is the last element of the memory to go in an Alzheimer's patient. And I also showed videos of like a ballerina who was just lying, you know, sitting there. And then they played the music that she used to dance to. And she sort of got up and transformed (sighs) or a jazz, a former jazz play, you know, uh, jazz instrumentalist. Yes. So he did it. And so Tony Bennett, Tony Bennett did it with Lady Gaga. He completely had full on Alzheimer's and she said, what about, and I don't know what the song was, but what about this jazz standard? And she said the song, you're good at that, Tony. What (laughs) do you think? They played that intro to the piece and he was right back there singing away. Amazing. So I want to tell you the genesis of that piece. So I was at the beach with my family and I was walking and I saw the waves crashing and I thought I made a correlation in my mind of the waves to the rush, the onrush of Alzheimer's that was coming for my family, for my dad. And I said to my husband, I left my phone at home. Give me your phone. (laughs) And I wrote in the notes app because that's where I do a lot of writing or jotting down. I do everything in that notes app or in drafts. I just, you know, email myself and put it in drafts and don't send it to myself. So I write, I wrote the waves of Alzheimer's overtaking us both. I wrote that line. And then I was like, oh my God. And it started, and I then I thought back to when I was a child, we would go to Jones Beach and we would go to Jones Beach Theater. And I don't have the piece in front of me. It was a couple of years ago, but I started writing about how my dad has Alzheimer's and really the only, and he was always very supportive of my singing and my performing. And the only way that like words weren't working and words had always worked for me. Words were always my playground and they still are my playground, but they're no longer my dad's fort. So it's supposed to be fort, not forte. So I'm saying fort. Yes. And so I wrote about how, when we would talk on the phone during the pandemic, I would sing to him and that would get his attention. And he would feel it. And he'd say, oh, that's so lovely. I just so enjoy you singing. And he was always so supportive. And in those moments, as you know, you know very personally that Alzheimer's strips every element of a person's personality away Mm -hmm. so that they're not who they were. And he was no longer the dad, the protective, the doting dad of my childhood. But when I sang, it brought that feeling back between the two of us. And so I wrote about it and I ended the story with my last sentence. I think I said, you know, uh, this is our new way of communication and I will, I will sing to him until the waves of Alzheimer's overtakes us both. Something like that. Yeah. Incredible. (laughs) No, it's just, I mean, and writing like that, it touches your soul. It strikes a chord. It resonates with the public because people see themselves in your piece. And I think this is the reason that three of your pieces have gone viral. Can you speak to what that was like? That must have been a trip the first time or any of the times that that happened to you. 
So the first piece I think I wrote that went viral was I said something like there was, I can't remember her name, Marissa. She became the owner of Yahoo. Yes. Marissa Mayer. And she said that nobody should work from home. Mm. This was before the pandemic. Mm. And I wrote, you know, what is she smoking? Basically, (laughs) I wrote like she's sitting in her ivory tower and all the research actually shows that moms, especially new moms, do fine working from home. And I gave all this research and information. Mm-hmm. And that was my first piece that was mentioned on The View. Yes. And by Webby Goldberg. Yeah. And I think she mentioned another one later, but that was what first one that was mentioned. Wow. And later I wrote a piece. We were on vacation in Vermont, and my daughter, I think, was about six or seven years old. And she started acting out. And she was very disrespectful. She was eating too much sugar. She didn't want to go to sleep. And she was very rebellious. And so I pitched the editor of the On Parenting section at the Washington Post. And I said, I'd like to write a piece and call it My Daughter is Out of Control. And I said, and I'd like to, what the reason that she's out of control, though, here's the spin, is that it is because she's watching me and I'm cutting in line. You know, I, somebody's cutting me in line at school pickup and I'm getting angry or I need sugar and I'm having a meltdown wow. or I'm not using my P's and Q's with my husband. Wow. So the onus needs to be on me. And that was very different because I was also part of that blogger network, which happened after Listen to Your Mother. Yes. And a lot of the bloggers were writing how horrible their kids were and how annoying their kids were. But that wouldn't cut it for a national publication. That's fine for a blog, but a national publication needs to have a hook. And so my hook was the onus is really on me. And that went crazy. That was Fabulous. everywhere. Because was- you owned it. Because you owned it. You made yourself human. The minute you make yourself vulnerable, which a lot of writers are afraid to do, but guess what? Isn't that where the gold is, right? It's true, but you have to be prepared. And I always say this, I say this to my students and I have it in my book. Don't blow up your life for a byline. Yes. Number one. Yes. I love that. And number two, when you unleash something on the world, be prepared for the world to unleash back on you. Right. It's important to think about that. For example, I had a student who wanted to write about being angry at her kids and yelling at them all the time. And she was going through a divorce. And I said, please, do not write this right now because this can come back to hurt you in court. Yes. And she didn't. And later she said, I was sort of angry. I wanted to. I thought I had a piece. She goes, but you were right. My ex would have totally run with that. Yes. Yes. So you're right. You have to make that decision. It's so important to develop a writing voice. And I love that you equate the writing voice with the singer's voice, that we immediately know that it's Barbra Streisand. We don't even need two bars. One bar, a few notes we know at the very top of the song, that that's Barbara Streisand that's singing, or that's Kelly Clarkson belting out a tune, we know immediately. And you equate the recognizable tone of someone's voice to a writer's voice. What are some great tips on how to make your voice as a writer sound real 
and authentic and relatable. Don't answer that just yet. We're going to go on a short commercial break. More with Estelle Erasmus when we come back. Back in a moment. Finding Your Bliss is brought to you by CREATE, Canada's leading fertility centre for over 25 years. CREATE is here for anyone struggling with infertility or in need of assisted reproductive technology to have children. CREATE is about cutting-edge science from highly skilled doctors. In unprecedented times like these, CREATE is about ensuring the safety of all patients and staff. CREATE has made important changes to protect you by ensuring social distancing, wearing masks, as well as screening before entering. So what about the bundle of joy that you've been hoping would come into your family? CREATE Fertility Center is here for you. Visit createivf.com to keep up with the latest changes and learn about CREATE Fertility Center's comprehensive care for every fertility journey. Keep safe and healthy during these challenging days, remembering that life is about moments that we create together. We are back, and this is Finding Your Bliss on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. And just before the break, I was asking you, Estelle, about tips on how to find your voice as a writer. Right. So a writing voice, it's like a fingerprint. It's like your own voice. And like you said, in the book I talk about, we know if it's Barbara Streisand or Kelly Clarkson or Rihanna singing. And so people are showing their personality through their writing, their idiosyncrasies, the way they turn a phrase. Maybe there are things they always say. Maybe they, you know, maybe your husband is always saying, that's a good one. And that you make sure to include that in something that you're writing. Mm -hmm. Or maybe you like to use alliteration. I love to use alliteration. And so you're using that in your writing. And I think I give the example in my book that for a piece I wrote, I called him my conservative Cupid. <laughs> Great. So, That's a great and, one. Uh, yeah. And maybe some people like to hyphenate. And it's also the way you look at the world, right? Somebody could look at a sunrise and say, oh, it's a kaleidoscope of colors. And somebody could look at a sunrise and say, it looks like the eggs that I was served at my grandmother's <laughs> hospice the day she died, right? So that yes. shows how you look at the world, how you act, and that's how you can tell personality and ways that you can do it. And I share in the book lots of tips and tricks. But one of the things I think is really helpful is to tape record yourself, mm-hmm. like telling a story as if you were telling a friend, particularly if it's a story that people love to hear. Yes. Because you'll hear how you say it, how you do the turn of phrase. And I've done the live storytelling show, which is listening to your mother. And so that uses these essays about motherhood. And I had written one about my daughter. And that was kind of how I first discovered my writer's voice after being a journalist and a magazine editor and doing everything in a very journalistic style. So I tell my students, and it's one of the tips, I, one of my sales edge I share in the book is to put your voice in the beginning of the story, even if it's an article and then maybe at the end, but at least in the beginning. Yes. Brilliant tip. What a brilliant tip that is. And you know, you've just given me an idea, like the words that you bank, keeping that list of all the words that you bank, you could also keep really cool metaphors or similes or analogies or alliteration, a little section on those cool ones, like the fabulous one you came up with and use it in a later story. Well, that was really good. I don't know where I'm going to put that yet, but I'm going to keep that in my little uh, journal, right? You know what? You know what I do, Judy? I, when I'm reading a book now, I'm so glad you brought up metaphors. When I'm reading a book, if I see a good metaphor, 
I have a bunch of post-it notes like all over the place and I'm looking for them now. They're not on my desk. And I stick them on the metaphor section just to see, just to kind of get me thinking a little bit. Yeah. There's so much in the book and I'm not, I don't want to give it all away, but you talk about op-eds and how people can feel confident about writing one. You're going to have to read this to know about the op-ed and how to write one, but such good stuff. And I want to get to this next bit, which is so important because you can write all you want, but someone has to see it. It's like, you can sing. If no one hears you sing or no one sees your painting, has the art really been expressed? So pitching, pitching, pitching. The pitch is everything. So I love your section on how to pitch to publications so you don't get ghosted. Dale Carnegie's quote, most of the important things in the world have been accomplished by people who have kept on trying when there seemed to be no hope at all. Jack Canfield, Chicken Soup for the Soul, talked about that on my show. Just everyone, you know, a lot of people fall down seven times, get up the eighth. What are some tips and techniques on how to create the perfect pitch? Well, I would say with the pitch, it's all about the hook, right? Editors have seen everything. They see everything and they're apprised of the latest research, the latest cultural phenomena happening in the zeitgeist. So if you can find a spin on it, for example, Julie Fraga, who is a very well-published writer and also a therapist, uh, was formerly my writing student. Yes. And she wanted to write something about the new going in and out of online therapy. And so we wanted to make it kind of exciting. So I said, why don't you give it like a really provocative title, like when therapy is like Tinder? Wow. (laughs) So that ended up, yeah, that ended up in the Washington Post. And it was in a special section in print as well. And so that was the take on this cultural phenomena that was out there Okay, now we understand. And then we use the terminology throughout her essay about swiping on the next therapist and the next therapist and then scenarios. And so that was appealing to an editor. Why? It was timely. Yes. Two, it had a good evocative title that brought out emotion. Three, she had anecdotes, she had quotes, and she had her own personal experience as being a therapist. So if you're trying to come up with a idea, you don't want to just take a topic. A topic is like depression in children Mm -hmm. or problems in a marriage. You want to take something that is, maybe there's a ritual that you do as a married couple. Okay. You, I'm going to make this up. It's like postcard night and you write (laughs) each other postcards from everywhere you want to go in the world together. And now every time you fight, you give each other a postcard, right? I'm just showing this as a hook that could potentially show an editor, oh, there's a story here. Now, even better, if this has become a movement, maybe postcard night happened in your city and now it's happening in other cities. And now there's a website tied to it. And now a marriage therapist is proponent of it. Suddenly a whole, there's a whole cornucopia and people are, I also think it really helps to tie it into the zeitgeist of what's in the air, right? So it's not just your story, but you know, it's going to be relatable because the zeitgeist is such that this thing is happening. And if you can plug into that as well, it's just more power packed. And I think that's 
almost the hardest thing for students to get sometimes is how to create this hook. And I always say, I've said this my whole life, information is power. So what you need to do is collect information about the things that you are interested in writing about. And I talk about how to do that in the book. And, you know, Google Alerts is one way, and there are several ways, but you can start collecting information and that gets your brain thinking. Even if you're not going to use it, it might, like you said, you looked at my book and it spurred you on to other thoughts and inspired you. That's what getting information is. And in fact, when I'm writing an article or when I'm writing something, I do a deep dive to get all the information. And even when I'm interviewing someone, like you did your research on me, you read my book, you looked at my articles, you looked at my essays. I do that when I'm interviewing guests for Freelance Writing Direct. And because then you have that knowledge that you can then play with. Then you can go, you can talk about this, you can talk about that. And yet it gives you the depth that you need from which to then go forward. And it's the same thing with writing. I know that early on in your career, Estelle, you focused on writing how-to story sharing tips, expert advice and experience. You use lots of subheads and sidebars to make your stories easier to read. This is all great stuff. So it's not one big long thing that you can't get through. And this was all under the area of service journalism. Can you tell us just briefly about service journalism, which is really at the heart of most writing today? Yes, it's absolutely at the heart of most writing today. And service journalism is tips, tricks, tools, advice, expert opinion and advice that's going to improve your life. That's really the service aspect. And that's what I started out learning. My first job in magazines was associate beauty editor at Woman's World magazine, which is the newsstand publication that I think today goes to 4 million people. And at the time, maybe went to 2 million, Mm -hmm. which was a huge amount of readers. And I had seven deadlines a week. And so I had columns, I had articles, I had things that I was writing about and interviewing experts that I was interviewing in the beauty and fashion realm. Mm -hmm. So it's all about getting new information that's going to help your reader. So what would that be? For example, if you're writing a story about money, the obvious thing, somebody who is a novice would say, oh, I could write about couponing. Well, you know what? Couponing has been done. That's been written about for the past 30 years. That was written about in the 90s when I was working in magazines. So you don't want to write about that, but maybe there's a new app. Maybe AI is addressing money saving issues in a different way. Maybe there's some new book that's coming out with a different take on money. Maybe there's a study that has come out saying that people who spend more money are better in bed or people who spend less money are more likely to ghost you. I'm just making this up. But this is the idea of where you can start accruing this very pertinent information that then you can use to get an editor's attention. Before I ask you the last couple of questions, because I've just scratched out 32 questions I don't have time for, which means you have to come back on this show, and I hope you will. I would be honored. Uh, How do you create an opening sentence that will captivate the reader into wanting more? I'm going to ask briefly, how do you achieve that? I think 
that it's really important to get to the inciting incident very quickly. And that is the point where something happens. In essays today, essays back when I was in publishing for print, it was like 2,000, 2,500 words. Nobody, nobody does that, even with print anymore, unless it's a major, major Pulitzer Prize winning feature for Vanity Fair. But the essays today are 800 words, 600 words, 1,000 words, the most probably 1,200 to 15, Mm -hmm. and that's it. So So you have to get to the point quickly. Are you writing about a difficult breakup? You can't wait to get to the breakup on page two. Yes. So (laughs) you get into it right away. Maybe use dialogue. Get in the room. I have to tell you something. Mm. He said, Mm. you know, oh, I'm getting my Christmas present, I thought, you know. Yes. Yes. And then the scene unfolds, maybe in the second paragraph. Nice. Right? Right to the right to the kicker. There is a section on the million dollar question. I know about these questions because I ask them all the time in interviews. So first I'm going to ask you, is there anything I haven't asked you that you really, really want to impart to our listeners today about this? I do want to say really quickly about Listen to Your Mother, because that was the time that I felt I really found my writer's voice. And what happened was very briefly, I was at an event at the library and I talk about it in the book and everybody was sitting in a circle and you had to follow the rules, right? Well, my daughter was 18 months old and she wasn't going to follow the rules. So she got out of my lap. She went into the middle of the circle and she began to dance. Mm. And that brought all these emotions out. First, I was afraid. I was shamed. I was like, are people going to get mad at me that she's doing this, that she's breaking the rules? And then I thought, oh, wow, nobody's mad. They're looking at her admiringly. And I thought, could I ever be like that again? And I actually wrote, I have a little thing what I wrote. I watched my daughter spin around the floor in reckless abandon, her feet moving in a wild motion to some music in her mind. The music first carried her toward the other mothers and children and then away. I felt her palpable joy. I worried that the other moms would resent my child's insistence on taking center stage, but I saw smiles on their faces instead of the disapproving frowns I feared. I marveled at the wonder that is my daughter as she moved. She acted so clearly in the moment. Mm. No worries, fears, or thoughts for the future interfered with her actions. Mm. And I thought, could I be like that? (laughs) And that was my piece for Listen to Your Mother. And that's how I found my writer's voice. And everyone listening today can find their voice too. And your last question, I love that you brought up the last question from the book because it's so important and you're an expert interviewer, obviously, but, you know, is there anything that you haven't asked? Because that's where the gold comes. What is bliss for Estelle Erasmus? Oh, my family, my wonderful husband of almost 19 years, Werner, who I have written about and I'm working on a memoir, so you'll hear more about that. And my beautiful, wonderful, smart, very willful, (laughs) independent daughter, Crystal, who is now 14 years old, going on 20. And I also, that's my first. My second is my creativity, my writing, my way of producing in the world and 
sharing my stories because I'm a storyteller at heart Mm -hmm. and sharing that's the world. I'm working on a novel as well, slow going, but I'm working on it. And the third thing is teaching. I love teaching. I love giving to my students and being generous with them from my years of experience and expertise and knowledge and being able to make them be the best writers they can be with the underpinning of craft underneath Mm. it and knowledge. And Mm. those are my three wonderful, you know, there are probably so many more I can think of, but that's those are the, and music, of course, music is always there underlying everything. I sing to my family. I haven't sang to my students yet, but I probably will <laughs> at some point. And I sing when I'm happy about something that I'm writing. Well, I think all of those people in your life, your husband, your children, your students, your friends and family are very lucky because you're you're really doing great work in this world to help people connect to their righteous voice. We all need to express ourselves and you're doing a beautiful thing in this world. And I thank you for sharing it with us today. It was really very soulful and wonderful to have you here. Thank you so much, Judy. I so appreciate speaking to you. It's been fabulous. It was so great. Thank you so much. And I should ask you, how can people connect with you on social media, in your newsletter, your writing courses, your website and social media to learn more? Sure. My website is Estelle S as in Sam, Erasmus, E-R-A-S-M-U-S dot com. And if you sign up for my newsletter, which comes out once a week, you will receive a pitching guide, a free pitching guide, which will be really helpful to you. I have a sub stack called Writing That Gets Noticed, where I share a lot of craft tips and craft advice and some writing opportunities as well. And that's Estelle S. Erasmus dot substack.com. And I also have a podcast, Freelance Writing Direct, where I talk to top authors like Cheryl Strayed and Anne Hood and Vanessa Foix and William Dameron and assigning editors. So if you want to know the lowdown on how to get into HuffPost Personal, how to get into Wired, how to get into Writer's Digest, how to get into Brevity, look at my podcast. It's also on iTunes and YouTube, and it's on my website, estellaserasmus.com forward slash podcast. And on social media, you can find me everywhere. That's Instagram, X, Twitter, and also Threads, Blue Sky, (laughs) and TikTok, which I love, but I haven't done a while. (laughs) And Estelle S. Erasmus. That's awesome. I want to thank you very much for being a guest on the show today. Really, it was delightful having you. Everybody, get a copy of this book, Writing That Gets Noticed. What a great way to start the new year with this book. Write it down to make it happen. Thank you. Each week, we spotlight a fabulous person like Estelle Erasmus, who is living their bliss. So if you're an author, artist, yoga, meditation, or mindfulness expert, or really anyone who has found and is following their bliss, we would love to hear from you. We also love to feature singer-songwriters or musicians on the show. If you're a singer, please reach out to us. Also, what did you love about today's program? Are there any guests or topics you would like us to feature on Finding Your Bliss? Write to us at fyb at findingyourbliss.com. I'm also a life coach. If I can help you in any way, let me know. You can reach out and contact me at findingyourbliss.com slash coaching. I'm also on Insight Timer, the number one free meditation app. And of course, you can always follow us 
at The Bliss Minute on Instagram and Facebook. I would like to thank our wonderful guest, Estelle Erasmus, for being on the show today. Also, thank you to Mag Ruffman, Siobhan Kiley, producer Olivia Weatherall, audio engineer Juliana Yanitz-Yello, senior editor Lauren Kaminsky, video editor Sierra Brown-Rodriguez, audio producer Faz Kazi, and everyone here at Zoomer. And of course, a big thank you to our sponsor, the Create Fertility Center. To close out the show, we're going to listen to a short clip of Estelle singing Summertime by Gershwin. Let's roll that clip. beautiful, Estelle. Thank you so much for that. For everyone here, I'm Judy Liebrach, reminding you all to take one step closer to finding your bliss. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.